It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you starting the 2016 season by downloading us and listening as we babble about uh, week one of the 2016 Division Three football season, the Around the Nation podcast for September 5th, 2016. And I hope you have all enjoyed your holiday weekend. Uh, in this case, I'm talking about, of course, the annual return of Division Three football. Maybe not a national holiday, but uh, everybody else seems to call it Labor Day. Uh, I had the chance to take in a couple of games this weekend. Hopefully you got to see at least one in person yourselves or followed online or, you know, maybe you're just waking up. Maybe you don't start until week two. But I will talk a little bit more about what I saw this weekend coming up later. Uh, but before we go any further, I need to, of course, introduce my co-host, Keith McMillan. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, that went well. So if this is your first Around the Nation podcast, uh, Keith was the originator of the Around the Nation column on D3Football.com uh, back in the dark ages and is a former Division Three player. Uh, we chat uh, via Skype every week during the season and every month during the offseason about the news in Division Three football. And uh, we better get to it because uh, not only do we want to keep this under an hour, but uh, so does our focus group. Let me tell you that. Lots of stuff, of course, happened in week one. Uh, and, you know, Keith, some of it I think probably probably is just based on uh, the fact that we have so many preconceived notions. We think what uh, we might know coming into the season, right? And then the first week of games come and completely blow it out of the water. For example, um, you know, we, I don't know if we uh, thought or assumed or just kind of took for granted that Wesley was going to plug in another quarterback like they've done every year since whenever Chris Warwick graduated back in 1972 or something like that. Okay, like <laughs> 2005 or whatever, 2006. Um, that did not happen. Uh, Dan Kiesack and Nick Falkenberg combined for four interceptions. And, um, you know, Wesley also had game discipline problems like they often do committing a lot of penalties but in the grand scheme of things um you know they lost to delaware valley a game that uh, we would not have expected them to lose coming into this uh, coming into this week yeah on, on one hand you certainly don't expect that from a perennial top 10 uh, occasional top five uh national semifinalist kind of team uh wesley's always been able to reload and because they recruit their their area so well in Delaware and, and southern New Jersey and southern southeastern Pennsylvania, um, and because they're a nationally known program, uh, they, uh, they they almost you know we we do we we do kind of take for granted I guess the fact that you can just find another Shane McSweeney or uh, Joe Callahan you just keep plugging them right in Justin Siler you just keep plugging them in and you know like you're automatically going to have another quarterback like that. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not always the case. I think the other thing that is not all that surprising about this is uh, over the years, even over Wesley's dominant period, they have um, consistently scheduled other pretty good uh, mid-Atlantic teams. And they often, you know, lose an early game in the season like this. And, uh, and, and you know, and they regroup and, and kind of get better from it. They they play with a little bit of edge with that one loss because uh, because, you know, you can't really afford to lose another one. Although now that they're a uh, they're in a conference uh you know they they could lose a couple of early games and still come back and win the conference but um but yeah losing to Delval they've lost um to Montclair State to Kane um there's another one I'm forgetting why they've lost they play. I think, yeah I think they lost to Delaware Valley some years back too yeah so this is kind of um typical Wesley in some ways but it's also very atypical Wesley in that we don't know what their quarterback situation is going to be going forward 
on the Delaware Valley side. First of all, if you're not familiar, Delaware Valley uh, University is not actually in the state of Delaware, just so you know. But Sean Miller, the guy who uh, had three of those four interceptions for the Aggies on Friday night, is from the state of Delaware. So that's uh, one that's one spot where uh, Wesley missed out on uh, clearing out the guys in their area. That would have certainly uh, that would have certainly helped them. You know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, Keith, um, Delaware Valley plus five. Uh, Wesley minus five in the turnover battle and yet still had a chance and had a chance the entire second half. The game was 21-14 at the break, um, 21-14 the final. Um, and, and, you know, Wesley looked like it was driving, but it was a, a fumble in the uh, in the final analysis, the final turnover, not an interception that, uh, that uh, sealed the deal for the Aggies against the Wolverines. Yeah, and, and that turned out, going back to what you said in the intro, that turned out to be one of of the big results in a, in a opening week full of them right there there again you come in with those preconceived notions um and in in the case of a preconceived notion about wesley you know there's sort of 12 years of good history that that leads us to believe they're going to be pretty good but um but i think across the board there were there were um surprises and and not not always stunners but like good surprises in the sense that um you know, you think you have a good idea about a team, and then um, East Texas Baptist scores the first 30 points against Texas Lutheran. You had the the Wabash-Albion game, which was, uh, you know, kind of a blowout at the half, ends up being a great comeback. You have Central and Whitworth, 50-49 game that comes down to a two-point conversion. Um, I just thought there were games up and down the uh, the schedule. You know, Dubuque um, scoring 70 points against Bethel, who, who put up 53 of its own. Uh, you know, we'll get to all this stuff as we talk for the for the next forty five minutes plus. But um, I, I just thought for for week one, uh, you know, the Franklin comeback against Thomas More, the fact that so many um, top twenty five teams lost in week one, I, I thought it was just an exciting week one, and I didn't necessarily know if it was going to be that way going in. Next forty five minutes, we'll see if the over under on that is better than any of our over unders on the Rose Holman Illinois College game. Hey, I said forty five plus. <laughs> I know, I know, I get that. Um, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna go for the over. Um, talking about preconceived notions, maybe and surprises. I thought that the Central Whitworth game, uh, which you touched on just a second ago, really, really dives in here. I think that you know Central has been uh, no longer you know a, a, a perennial contender even in the Iowa Conference, uh, let alone on a regional level, let alone you know back in the '80s when they were a contender on the national level. Um, and Whitworth, you know, we just had this again, again, is it, uh, I think I used a couple of terms earlier about Wesley, one of which was assumption that they would be as good as they were last year. And, you know, I obviously certainly offensively, they were as good as they were last year, but, uh, giving up 50 points, even if eight of those are in overtime, certainly, uh, leads some questions. Remember last year, Keith, when we talked about Whitworth, all we knew about Whitworth was that they were better than everybody else on their schedule except Linfield, and they were nowhere near Linfield in terms of quality. Yeah, yeah, they had nine wins, and they finished nine and two. They got outscored in two games against Whitfield, one hundred to twenty in in the composite score between the two games. So yeah, you know that meant they could be anywhere below number three or number four in the nation. Does that mean they're a top ten team? Does that mean they're a top fifty team? You know, we didn't quite know. And then I think you add in the the fact that Central and Whitworth. Obviously, from not from the same conference or having much overlap between teams they play, you bring a team from Iowa out to Spokane, Washington, and uh, 
the, you know, the teams just aren't familiar with each other. So, and it's week one too. And, and this is Pat, where you get to drop in the week one, week two cliche. Um, I, I think it's just a recipe for, you know, you got two pretty good teams starting off, uh, hoping to start off on the right foot. And then you just don't, I think that's one of the, the, the beauties of division three, uh, certain matchups, especially this early in the season before conference play is you get these kind of games where you just don't know what to expect, at least from a national perspective. And it's fun to watch. East Texas Baptist, Texas Lutheran, another really good uh, example of that. You mentioned uh, the Tigers getting off to a a 30-0 start. You know, um, that's a team that's replacing its quarterback, East Texas Baptist, Texas Lutheran. You know, there's uh, at least a possibility that Marquise Barol might have been healthy and ready to go. And, you know, it doesn't really matter when you're giving up 30 points that early, whereas uh, for East Texas Baptist, I know from talking to them for kickoff this year, you know, brand new coach, well, not a brand new coach, a guy, Scotty Walden's been in the program, but new to the head coaching position, young guy, I think the youngest head coach in division three right now, uh, maybe which, and that often means that they're the youngest head coach in, uh, NCAA football altogether. Um, the, uh, you know, that's a, that's obviously a really good start for them, especially considering there were some new pieces on offense. You know, they were working with a new quarterback, Warbington, the longtime quarterback for the Tigers graduated last season. So that's a, a really good start for them. And especially in a situation where, you know, there's no automatic bid for any, either of those conferences in Texas, and uh, somebody's going to have to run the table or go nine and one with a pretty good uh, non-conference win in order to make the playoffs as an at-large. And East Texas Baptist certainly checked one of those boxes. Yeah, and, and you know, it really wasn't fluky in any way either. They, they built a 30-0 to zero lead at the half, um, and a couple of those drives were long drives, 10-play drive, 8-play drive to start the game for them. And, um, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised that they beat Texas Lutheran, but I think the 30, scoring the first 30 points of the game, the final ends up being 44-20, but... Um, you know, that was the real shocker to me. And now that's a team that, you know, we haven't paid attention to them significantly on a national basis. I, I think they bubbled up a little bit last season with some um, with a couple of games, uh, you know, against the big dogs in Texas where we had to keep an eye on them. But really, it's been like since 2003 when they had that one great run uh, with Greg Washington, I believe, um, that they've been a kind of a playoff type team. So yeah, you got a you got a guy now, a head coach who's a 2011 graduate of Sol Ross State at the helm, and and this is a team that we're gonna have to keep an eye on now. All right, uh, Greg Washington pulling that name out of the out of the hat. Well done. Um, I sometimes I can remember the 2003 names better than I can remember the 2015 names, which I don't want to know what that means for anything. Um, how about the Wabash Albion game? Uh, you, we mentioned, uh, you know, that it was Wabash out to an early lead. They led 20 to three Albion came back and made it not only a game, but actually took it to overtime in the second half. And I don't think we really got our questions answered about, uh, you know, Wabash post Eric Rayburn, post Mason Zurich, post BJ Hammer, you know, all the you know, key pieces both on the sidelines and on the field that they lost off of last year. No, and and, and look, the two teams, both of these teams are um, pretty high powered offensively. I think they, they'll be able to move the ball up and down the field. You look at the the box from this game, and again, it's an overtime game, so the, the stats are slightly inflated, but um, each 89 plays for Wabash, 83 for Albion, uh, 20 attempts on third down and 23 23- for Wabash. So these teams, ton of possessions. 
um, up and down the field. And in the you know the final was forty one thirty four, but it wasn't a shootout really the entire time. It was twenty to three at the half for Wabash. And I you know you don't know if they took the the foot off the gas a little bit or uh, or if you know Albion just went in at, at halftime and kind of. Um, you know, was a, able to clean up some of the things they saw out there and kind of communicate that to the, the offense and defense and really apply it in the third quarter and early fourth. But then, uh, you know, they start rolling. They they come back. They actually took the lead on a 56-yard interception return late in that game. And so Wabash actually had to drive um, to to tie it. You know, a game they're, they're leading 20-3. to They're down 37, uh, 34-27. They have to drive. Uh, late in the game, uh, eight-yard uh, Oliver Page touchdown catch from Connor Rice to tie with 12 seconds left. Then Wabash, uh, you know, has the ball in overtime, scores. And so, if you're, uh, you know, a poll voter and you kind of just look at the score and you say, well, you know, Albion was pretty good last year, um, high-powered offense, and eh, 41-34 looks like a pretty decent win to them uh, for for Wabash. It doesn't really give you the whole picture of of what happened on Saturday. I tell you what it does uh, do for me, Keith, is uh, Albion had the, you know, the senior quarterback lost a bunch of guys on the offensive side of the ball. Um, and, you know, the, to me, it says, well, I think Albion will continue to be a contender in the MIAA this year. I had some questions as to whether they could replicate some of that uh, offensive success they had last season. And yeah, you know, getting how many yards was that again? I mean, it's only 338 yards of total offense. Um, they had two returns for touchdowns during that comeback, but you know, still to have a, a quarterback who's going to come in and make the first start, Chad Hamilton like that, yeah, that's a that's a team that's going to continue to be in that top three in the MIAA. Well, especially when you you rope it in with um, with Adrian going out to Pacific and and winning in week one too. Now you have potentially a couple of contenders uh, to to keep an eye on in that conference. Adrian to Pacific. Yeah, lots of other games to talk about here uh, during the course of this podcast. Uh, I'd like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by you know, your name here. You could be reaching an audience full of Division dis, division three decision makers, football coaches who need new equipment, who can uh, influence decisions to replace turf, uh, all sorts of things by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before we go to break. Uh, so think about it. And drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. I will say this, more than 1,800 unique listens to our previous podcast. And that was in August, before any of those games were played, before the Division Three traffic comes back. And you're, you're missing out. This is an opportunity to reach people who purchase things. And isn't that what marketing is all about? Welcome back in the Around the Nation podcast. It's time for our game balls, and I'm going to give mine to a guy I saw on opening night, uh, Johns Hopkins running back Ryan Carey. This is a guy who, after sitting behind Brandon Cherry and Stuart Walters, finally got a chance to start and looked pretty good, scoring the first four touchdowns of the game as the Blue Jays defeated WNL by a score of 45-29. So he had his 20 carries for 158 yards, all in the first three quarters, and had three receptions for 69 yards, uh, one of them a 38-yard touchdown. You know, Keith, Johns Hopkins actually might not miss a beat in the backfield, and I would not have expected that coming into the season. For my game ball, let's go to the other end of D3. You know, we'll give out plenty of game balls over the course of the year to to Wisconsin Whitewater and Lynn Field and Mary Arden Baylor and Mountain Union. But uh, how about a little shine for Southern Virginia, which uh, snapped an 11-game losing streak on Saturday uh, against uh, Earlham, 
which also had, was putting its uh, its long losing streak on the line. And uh, Southern Virginia won uh, 28-18 in uh, Joe Dupay's first game as head coach. And if you're a longtime podcast listener, you'll recall that uh, we got to talk to the the new coach uh, at Southern Virginia over the course of the offseason, one of our offseason interviews. And, you know, that's just a kind of a, a tough job um, that he's in. You know, they're on like their fifth head coach. They're playing in the NJAC, which isn't really a regional fit or, or it's not a geographical fit. It's institutional, mm, sort of, kind of. But, you know, Southern Virginia, uh, because it's affiliated with the uh, with the Church of Latter-day Saints, is, is a unique place. And so they're not recruiting from the same pool as Rowan and Kane and Wesley and Salisbury. So it's it's tough. And for them to uh, to get a win uh, in their coach's debut, I think, is is a pretty big deal. And also a uh, little hat tip for uh, Maranatha Baptist um, for beating a D3 opponent for the first time in three years. I saw that score, which was one of the first scores I saw on Saturday um, that I hadn't seen in progress. You know, finals that just hit at the end of the day. It's like, whoa, okay. Uh, Maranatha scoring 20 points. I had, you know... I had I had been I knew that uh, from writing both of those previews in kickoff I knew that there was a distinct possibility and in fact that was our uh, our uh, game that would uh, ride there where the season would ride but nonetheless uh, still surprised and yeah indeed congratulations to the SaberCats we have to keep remembering that they're not the Crusaders um, yeah we run through categories uh, we're going to try to not always do the same categories all sixteen weeks this season so we're dropping in especially in uh, light of how games went down on Saturday. Uh, this week, uh, my best comeback. There were a lot of them to choose from. Uh, I like what Elmhurst did against uh, a team that was kind of a dark horse to maybe win the Iowa Conference. Not a whole lot has been expected of the Blue Jays coming into this season, and it certainly made sense through the first three quarters on Saturday with Loris leading Elmhurst 27-9. to But then Elmhurst capped off a 96-yard drive with a touchdown to cut it to 12, and although the Blue Jays threw a pick on their next possession, the defense turned the tables right back as Sean Weatherall returned an interception on his own for 80 yards for a touchdown to cut that lead to 27-21. Loris turned it over on the next possession as well, fumbling the ball near midfield, and Elmhurst drove 48 yards over the next 6-43 for a touchdown, and Blake Bailey, who had missed two extra points in a row, made this one for the 28-7 lead, and Elmers went on to win that game 28-27. Pat, there, there were a ton of uh, comebacks to choose from this week. You know, you mentioned Elmhurst. We talked about uh, Albion uh, with the almost uh, coming back from 20-3 to, to to force Wabash in overtime. Franklin is another good candidate. They trailed uh, Thomas Moore 25-7 in the second quarter, 32-14 in the third before outscoring, outscoring Thomas Moore. Uh, 29-7 the rest of the way and taking the lead with 32 seconds left in that game. But I think the best comeback of the week was Catholic against McDaniel. At a point in the game where, you know, you almost given up hope. Um, or or they, they sort of should have been at this point. Down uh, two scores, don't have the ball with three minutes, 30 seconds left. And, uh, and they block a punt. Land on it for a touchdown, get the ball back. And uh, and are able to to score to send the game to overtime, and then uh, and then score in overtime. Now, um, the 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 they go ahead with a minute five left. This is uh, Catholic, you know, and they had to get a two point conversion to tie the game with a minute five left as well. They get that, go to overtime, score first in overtime, and then uh, and then have to hold McDaniel. It's just kind of um, I think it, there there's a point as a player. <laughs> 
and 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 as, as a player, your brainwash is not the right word, but you're so like you believe in your team so much, uh, and you don't think ever. You, you really, I don't remember ever thinking we were going to lose until you mathematically had to like accept it. Okay, we're down two scores, and so that's reaching the point in the game. You know, th- three and a half minutes left. They don't have the ball. And, uh, and, they're, and they're getting ready to start, start to make peace with the fact that, man, we just lost our opener. And, uh, and somebody digs deep. They block a punt. Uh, and then they get the ball back, score again, then score again in overtime, and then have to hold McDaniel to win. I give uh, a comeback of the week to Catholic. That's a game with uh, two first-time first head coaches. Bill Bachman got the job on an interim basis when uh, the previous coach left for Catholic just a couple of months ago. And Mike Daly is the new head coach for McDaniel. He was uh, promoted from within as well and i hear you people out there saying you guys are taking way too long where's the buzzer we used to have a buzzer in this podcast <laughs> we may have to bring it back here if we're gonna get out of here anytime uh today we'll, we'll hey, try it's to... week one for us too but we are entering the highly scripted portion of the podcast so <laughs> Indeed. let's keep it on track all right uh so uh my team on the rise in the top 25 or in the poll or on ballots this week uh hobart comes to mind uh, they rose on my ballot at least I know they didn't really change much in terms of their overall point total, but to me, the fact that they beat Brockport signifies that they're going to be in top 25 contention this season, where, you know, coming into the season, a team that's uh, maybe finishing second in the Liberty League, maybe not finishing second in the Liberty League. That's not necessarily a team you automatically peg for top 25 status, but uh, I'm looking for Hobart to, uh, to work their way up the others receiving votes and get into the poll at some point. I wonder if the listeners can tell when we're scripted and off script. It kind of depends on how well we've written that script, right? I imagine. So for my riser this week, let's take it back to the preseason ballot, right? I, we filed those ballots on, or at least I filed mine on July 19th. That's 47 days from Sunday when I filed my week one vote. So I was surprised to learn or remember that I, that I actually ranked East Texas Baptist 20th in the preseason, so I didn't have to move them into the top 25. I also had Salisbury one spot ahead of Albright, so I was good there. When I went and revisited that ballot, I tried to let that be the uh, the basis for what I was going to do before I fi- filed the ballot uh, on Sunday. So, you know, before I get too pat myself on the back, I also had Texas Lutheran 14th. I, I didn't have Delaware Valley anywhere to be found in the top 25. Thomas Moore lost, John Carroll lost. No matter what any of our preseason ballots look like, they all got severe reshapings this week. So, big riser. How about Dubuque, which uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, they came in at 18th for me. I didn't have them ranked at all in the preseason. And uh, the biggest riser for me was Johns Hopkins going uh, to 13th from 23rd in the preseason. And it's not solely a reflection of their impressive week one win over uh, WNL. It's more of a reflection that I was down on them, I guess, in the preseason uh, from that big spreadsheet where we look at everything they have coming back. And this was before we read the previews and kickoff and, and before I, you get to see him play a game. And so I, I corrected my stance and, uh, and, and adjusted my thinking to s- decide that I think this is the same old top 15 level uh, John Carroll and until we see some evidence otherwise. So I, I kind of put them back where they belong. Instead of on the fringe of the top 25, I uh, put them in the top 15. Yeah, Stat Boy would be all over you for saying John Carroll there that last time instead of Johns Hopkins. But I think people know what you mean. But if not, I clarified because John Carroll also did a thing this week. Um, Funny thing is that was part of the scripted part. But anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know, right? Just can't read. Uh, well, it is one uh, nineteen Eastern time a.m. Uh, as we're recording this particular segment. Yes, I'm giving away all the secrets. All right, uh, team that'll take a fall. Uh, Wesley, obviously, on this list. Uh, normally, you know, a, a national power such as Wesley might get a bit of a, a bit of slack for just one loss, but losing ten spots in the poll—that's not much slack at all. For me, my question is beyond this one game, though, Keith. What I'm hearing about Wesley is just not too promising for their quarterback situation the rest of the season. So for as long as Wesley has been a player at this level, they've always had a strong quarterback, but they definitely do not right now. I have them below Cortland, uh, below DelVal, and Salisbury at the moment, just to name a few East Region teams, for example, on my ballot. Yeah, I dropped Wesley pretty far myself, and it's hard for me to to take them completely out of the top 25, especially when you consider the, the general caliber year-to-year of a team like Delaware Valley. But obviously I had to put Delaware Valley in ahead of them, and uh, Wesley came in at 21 for me, which is the lowest I can remember ranking them in a long time. The team that, that took a fall for me, though, was, uh, was Wheaton, which dropped from uh, 7 to 12 and ended up uh, on my ballot, North Central kind of replaced where Wheaton was, and Wheaton replaced where North Central was. Uh, the Cardinals started off with a uh, impressive win over Robert Morris Chicago, uh, a pretty decent NAIA program, and uh, and Wheaton kind of slodged through a, a victory over Benedictine, a, te- a team that generally it should be much better than. Um, although uh, Benedictine, coached by a, a former member of Wheaton staff, probably had a pretty good read on what they do offensively, and, and maybe a hat tip. Uh, to, to Benedictine for being well prepared for Wheaton in week one. Yeah, well done, Josiah Sears. So, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I was at the Johns Hopkins WNL game on Thursday night, a game Hopkins won 45 29. We liked having the opportunity to get some other voices on this podcast over the offseason, and we definitely want to see that continue. So we'll have an interview segment in each podcast uh, during the regular season as well. I caught up with Johns Hopkins head coach Jim Margraff after the game. Uh, first of all, uh, it's got to feel good to get off on a, on a win. Well, without question. Uh, you know, the first game, you never know what you're going to get, and um, especially with an offense like that. They, they've got a terrific offense, a great football program. It was, uh, it was exciting that, that our guys uh, responded the way they did. They played well early overall. Uh, we got up a little bit, and uh, no, it's exciting to get, get away with a win. But really, to, to, to us, it's a preseason game. Our conference starts next week. We've got nine conference games the rest of the way. So uh, as I just told our guys, if, if this helps us for next week, great. Uh, but that, that's what we're looking for right now. Right, because for you guys, everybody across the Centennial, and has been for several years now, this is your only non-conference opportunity. Uh, that's correct, and, and, and it's great. You know, we, we've played a, you know, W&L now. We, we have Randolph making a couple of years. So we, we've liked to cross over with the ODAC. Uh, they're super teams and uh, you know, very similar student-athletes. Yeah, so an opportunity here, obviously, you know, us, those of us who handle the storyline aspect of Division Three look at this as, you know, a battle of two playoff teams, right? Two teams that uh, went 10-0 last year, that sort of thing. What, how much, you know, how does that factor in for you guys? What do you think when you come into a game like this? You know, again, we were trying to just focus on ourselves, but... Uh but it's nice to have that, that big game uh, atmosphere around it. And uh, you know, several years ago, we opened up with DelVal when they were a top team. We lost to them, but we ended up finishing the final eight that year. So there's a lot to be said for playing a tough game early. I think it tells you a lot about your team, where your weaknesses are, what you need to work on. And um, I'm sure we'll find out. We'll learn a lot when we look at film this evening tomorrow. Bit of a coming out party for Ryan Carey tonight, huh? Uh, four touchdowns, all of them in the first half, three of them on the ground. One of them in a, a pretty nice uh, razzle-dazzle play as well. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was fun, the razzle-dazzle play. But uh, no, Ryan's a terrific player, and, and someone asked me early in the season, who are we going to hear about this year that we didn't hear about last year? And, and my answer was Ryan Carey. So it's not a surprise to us. He's uh, worked very hard over the last couple of years, and uh, it's his, you know, his turn today, and he, he was great. 
Right, exactly, because you guys had some pretty good running backs the last couple of years ahead of them. We have. You know, we've, we've had a nice uh, a history of running backs in the last 10 or 15 years, but, uh, you know, Ryan's he's, he's invested his time rather than just, just waited, and uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a very good football player. We expect big things of him this year. Tell us a little bit about preparing for WNL for that offense, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, coming out right out of the gate in the season, you know, a, a couple nights early, so maybe even a fewer, uh, a couple of fewer practice opportunities, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's really difficult to have them in the first game. We're fortunate. We, we took the team to Italy last spring. We had some extra practices, so we started at that point just to introduce some of the. Uh, yeah, some of the elements of the option and, and, and what we what little we knew about them. And uh, we, we took some days each. We don't have two a days, but we had the, the opportunity for a second practice. We just bring the team up and we do some W&L. So uh, they're a very good offense, and I, I hope we don't see them again anytime soon. But you know, this time next year. But uh, our, our guys prepared well. Uh, the, the overall, overall did a solid job, and we'll learn a lot more tonight. You've been very open about the goal for this program being winning the conference championship and then you know whatever happens beyond that sometimes that's a struggle in division three you know you've been you've been very uh, I can kind of forthcoming about that for a long time does anybody ever you know pressure you on that saying no you guys should be thinking about being a, a team that tries to go to the quarterfinals rather than a team that focuses on those nine games uh, we, we, we want to go to the quarterfinals but but our, our first goal is to win the centennial conference championship there's no postseason without it for the most part so that's been our, our major focus and uh, I think our guys have done a good job of that and we, we do look at it uh, when we have gone to the playoffs the last number of years, that it's uh, it's extra football. It's a lot of fun. Our guys have enjoyed it, and we've come up and play short three years in a row from getting to the quarterfinals. So, or at least at least moving on. So it's it's uh, you know it's it's tough in some respects, but I'm proud of the way our guys have played. Keith, that last question is one I've been wanting to ask him for a while. Ever since I first was it read a piece or heard us you talk or last season or whether it was the season before or whatever about Johns Hopkins' goal is making the playoffs, uh, I, and 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 not necessarily where they want to go from there. I thought that was kind of selling their chances short because to me that's a program that should be aiming to make noise in the playoffs, not just get there. And I, I tell you, if I learned nothing from my time working for NBC Sports, it is how to take a storyline and bend it to fit the actual situation. But I, I thought his response there was good. That was what I had hoped he really felt about it. First, can we let the record reflect that he said Randolph-Macon student-athletes are similar to Johns Hopkins? I just, I just want the record to reflect that. He also uh, said the ODAC uh, teams are very good, and I, I didn't say anything, nor did I take the opportunity to rag on your alma mater uh, live, but I'm doing it now, I guess. All right. Well, I don't think I ever interpreted what um, Coach Margraf was saying as selling Johns Hopkins short. I think it was realistic. I, I took it as Johns Hopkins is not trying to be Mountain Union. Their goal is to win the centennial every year and still be excellent student athletes and then go take their shots at the best teams in the playoffs. The losses to Wesley, I think they hurt, especially when their five-point games decided late. But, I mean, realistically, the Blue Jays don't start their season circling the stag bowl. They circle their 10 games or, or, as he said, their nine centennial conference games, and then they play bonus football where every week is a gift and every win earns them another week together playing with their teammates. And if you, if you think about it, that's a really great attitude. Let's go off the beaten path for a off the beaten path highlight. And I'm going to go with the USA South taking two games from contenders in the Old Dominion Athletic Conference. Uh, Averett might have gotten an emotional boost. They opened a refurbished stadium, and, and they certainly got a boost from knocking Hampton Sydney's starting quarterback out of the game. But the fact of the matter is, Averett won 38-28 and led almost the entire second half in doing so. And, you know, uh, last year or in previous years, those two factors uh, facing Hampton Sydney's number two quarterback 
opening up at home would not have been enough to beat Hampton Sydney. Uh, in another situation, uh, Ferrum scored 24 points in the fourth quarter. They finally beat Emory and Henry the first time they've done that in more than a decade. Typically, Keith, uh, those are games that the ODAC has won. Yeah, I don't know if that's another game we could have put on under great comebacks, too. The, the Ferrum, Emory and Henry game, it also had the tie with uh, with Emory and Henry, with Ferrum's coach being from the Emory Henry staff the previous 11 years. So uh, my off-the-beaten-path highlight starts back how we do kickoff. Um, when we split up the conferences to edit, me, you, and Ryan Tips, you know, Ryan usually gets the ODAC and conferences in the South and out West. You take the Midwest because that's where you're based, and, and I take the Northeast. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about how teams in the, the order finish in the MASCAC and the NEFC and all these different um, God permutations. Bless you. God bless you, by the way. Those are difficult orders of finish to come up with. I, I think so, especially because uh, you know it's much easier to do the OAC, right? You have Mountain Union at the top. You can slot that in. You can slot in the same couple teams at the bottom, and then you just sort out the middle. And, and these conferences all churn and, and turn over. So you spend all this time balancing the predictions, and then Curry, who, who we predicted to have a losing record this year, uh, comes along and blows it up by beating Bridgewater State handily in week one. Bridgewater State, we had them contending uh, for our conference title. They, they were down 28-10, uh, came back to make it interesting, but ended up losing 28-24 to Curry. So I, I feel like as much as I love doing kickoff and we spend all this time on it and it has some kind of shelf life because it's comes out 10 days before the season, the one thing about week one, uh, which is fun for us on the podcast because we like to have things to talk about, but it kind of stinks as the, as the person who spent a lot of time uh, previewing it for kickoff, is all your your you spend all this time doing these records and then you know a couple games go and uh, and blow up some of your predictions. But I will say that uh, a lot of the major teams um, did win from from Salve to Western New England to Framingham and Fitchburg State. So uh, those yeah maybe those handful of results not surprising. A couple of real surprising ones that we haven't talked about or at least not in depth. Um, one of which is uh, Dubuque beating Bethel seventy to fifty three. Dubuque, you know, they go seven for 13 from beyond the three-point arc. They out-rebound Bethel by, oh, wait, sorry. I don't do D3 hoops anymore. Um, it's not just the fact that Dubuque won. I mean, you know, Spartans won the conference last year. They went to the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that they were able to put up yards and points with such ease. Uh, Connor Feckley threw for 634 yards and eight touchdowns. Najee Toomer has nearly 300 yards receiving for Dubuque. And all of that overshadows the Bethel offense, which had 200-yard rushers and a 200-yard receiver on its own. Just nuts. I, I have no idea what to expect now from Bethel the rest of the season, uh, in, in fact. And I, you know, I, I've had thoughts about Dubuque, and I, I think still that Dubuque is uh, the favorite or a favorite in the, uh, in the Iowa conference. But you know, now what do we make from, uh, from them after this? This is just kind of a really puzzling uh, result for me. Well, not to mention Bethel, who... You know, it had been, has kind of been on a down cycle the past couple of years from the standard that they had set, being kind of a eight and two, nine and one playoff contending team every year. You know, now they start off behind the eight ball. Most surprising result for me, again, this was such a heck of a week one. It's kind of hard to go through the list. I mean, more surprising than my ground and pound alma mater Randolph Macon beating Dickinson fifty one zero. More surprising than Augsburg losing fourteen zero to Northwestern Minnesota. Um, more more surprising than Dubuque and East Texas Baptist and Averett, which we've uh, mentioned already. How about North Central beating Robert Morris uh, Chicago? 
Uh, that's an NAIA school that beat uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh in its 2014 opener. So, you know, we know that's a pretty significant test early on for uh, for North Central. And uh, and the Cardinals did it while being outgained, outrushed, out time of possessed, and converting only two of ten third and fourth downs. Out time of possessed. I, I'm the one who's supposed to be making up words in this podcast. Just... Oh, I thought we alternated making them up. <laughs> we just make sure we make up one every week. All right. Uh, well, my stat of the week is going to be uh, from another game I saw, and that is, uh, well, I'll have to set this up for you. Stevenson picked off six passes on Friday night when they beat North Carolina Wesleyan 42-28, and a cornerback picked off three of them. Ah, but it wasn't preseason All-American cornerback Austin, Tennessee. In fact, he wasn't even playing cornerback, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. Uh, no, it was Jimmy Lauer who had three of the six interceptions. Corey Petrick had two. Tennessee had the other. Uh, Tennessee played safety instead of corner. And I asked Stevenson coach Ed Hoddle about it, especially because he spent so much time with me back on the July podcast and, and a lot more time off the air after we stopped recording about what a great corner Austin, Tennessee is. I'm here specifically to give you a hard time. Good. Give it to me. I'm ready. Well, you told me what a great cornerback Austin, Tennessee was. He is. He's not playing cornerback tonight. He plays safety now. Yeah, he, um, Tell me about that. It was a move we made. We've got, we've got a, a young guy in Dan Flo um, that's really, really talented. Uh, you know, and we graduated a great safety last year at Antonio Johnson. And, you know, it just seemed to make sense to, to put Austin in a position where he can affect the entire field as opposed to just one side of the field. So, um, you know, he's picking it up, and I think he, he bounced out there in a couple of packages we had tonight. So, um, you know, we're going to move him around and, and, and try to maximize him as, as, as a player. Yeah, I guess the big the, the big change or the big development would have to be in run support, right? Yeah, that, that, that's something that, that's new for him, but he's, I mean, he's a pretty tough kid, so he's a good tackler. Um, you know, so we're excited to see what he can do when we get him down in the box. Keith, I know I hit on one aspect of this, but as someone who played both corner and safety, what's your take on the difference in making the switch? I, I think the big difference are the levels of responsibility and the angle at which you see the game. Uh, as an outside corner, you're often on an island in coverage and in run support in the sense that whatever help that you have, all other 10 guys are to the inside of you, so you want to push the, the ball, the running back, the receiver back towards your help. Uh, you're responsible for that and, and often uh, just one outside receiver. It's a big responsibility because you might have eight plays in a row where you're not in the action or you're taking a deep backside angle in case it's a long play down the other side uh, or down the other sideline. And then uh, on that ninth play, you know, you better be awake if they're coming at you or the whole stadium will see you mess up. At safety, you've generally either got more run support responsibility or you handle all the communication on the back end because you have the best vantage point. So you study the other team's tendencies and you talk to your guys, the corners. You get the linebackers lined up uh, occasionally. Corners might study one wide receiver's tendencies. Safeties tend to know that on third and medium, WNL likes to throw to the tight end over the middle. They study whole team's tendencies. So in one sense, you're still in coverage and doing a lot of the same basics, but you have a completely different job. Uh, I got, a, I got a, a run of stats in the week. We had 10 teams shut out in their opener from George Fox to Ohio Wesleyan, Ohio Wesleyan to uh, Anna Maria. And that's kind of a, a rough week one, but you got to bounce back, right? You know, nowhere to go but up yep. if you don't score in week one. Uh, so 10 teams shut out in the opener, eight touchdown passes from the de- debut quarterback, seven top 25 teams that lost, six overtime games, and five teams in my top 25 but were not in the pollsters' consensus when it came out on Sunday night, those five teams are Stevenson, Hobart, St. Lawrence, Central, and Dubuque. And 
One extra stat of the week, roughly 900 miles driven each way, apparently, by uh, by TCNJ to Whitewater, if I'm reading that TCNJ football Twitter feed and their pictures uh, along the highway, if I'm reading those correctly. Oh, uh, that's, not a, that's not a drive I'm uh, willing to make or interested in making, at least not right now. Um, we usually do uh, our worst predictions and our best predictions from Triple Take. Of course, Triple Take has been uh, expanded and yet contracted at the same time. Uh, so we call it Quick Hits now. And if you didn't uh, pick that up on Friday, you can uh, go check that out. Um, probably still on the front page on d3football.com. Um, and uh, so there's six of us now. Most of us failed to pick a team that was going to regret a long trip. Uh, I even got a thumbs up from my daughter on one of the colleges we visited out east this weekend. And I should indeed have taken the prices right rules on the Rose-Holman-Illinois College spread, but I should have gone with $1 or one point instead of bidding high. Everybody who bid high uh, lost. That game was uh, incredibly low scoring for once. 14-13, right? Yeah. And that's uh, two years after a 74-68 game. And then last year they combined to score a bunch of points as well. So, yeah, we certainly didn't see that coming. I think that would have been a good first quarter score. Yeah, in, in, in a 74-68 game, 14-13 would have been a, a low-scoring quarter. How about, uh, why don't you take us through the best predictions from Quick Hits? Well, yeah, five of the six of us uh, correctly picked the top 25 team to lose, and it, it, with so many losing this week, it may not have been that hard, uh, but it's actually a pretty impressive rate. Uh, Kevin Neas, our guest prognosticator, was the only one who missed, and he picked Cortland State, which uh, only won by two against Heidelberg. And Pat, you should take credit for uh, for being the only one to correctly pick a team that would end its long losing streak. That was Southern Virginia. All right, we're going to take a, a reader question here, which uh, we asked on Twitter on Sunday night as we were sitting down to broadcast uh, and record this podcast what uh, readers wanted to hear about, and this is the one we picked. Uh, a reader asks about a solid week one for what a solid week one for their conference might translate into. I actually think that for their conference, it's kind of a stretch to call their week one solid, but I'm going to take that uh, concept and spotlight a couple different conferences and get your take here, Keith. Uh, starting with the positive side, we go with the CCIW. Uh, the conference as a whole, they went 7-1 and one this week, although the loss, Carroll's loss to Lakeland is a doozy, and it definitely makes the addition of Carroll look more like a net negative than the positive we thought it might be for the league. Uh, there were some good toss-up games in the mix well, with the Elmhurst game we already mentioned, North Park beating Anderson, North Central beating the NAIA school, and Augustana beating Mount St. Joseph. Your take on the CCIW in week one? Well, I think it's a pretty good week, and that's maybe back to the, the typical CCIW. We've seen uh, years in the past where they would, um, as a group, the teams would only lose one or two um, you know, games all together. But also I, I think it sometimes reflects uh, the, the scheduling as well. Um, you know, North Park and Anderson and, and you know, you're not, not always playing the, the, the strongest competition, whereas, um, you know, when they get to play each other at the top end of the CCIW, those are some pretty good teams. But but I, I think, you know, at one point, CCIW was maybe neck and neck with the MIAC, and, and that gap has really opened up in the past few years. So seven in one week is a good step back in the right direction. Well, taking a step back in the other direction, I was definitely looking at the MIAC. So the conference went 5-4 and four this week, which is you know not so bad, but all five wins were gimmies. Uh, and aside from those, you have, uh, we already mentioned, Augsburg losing to Northwestern, Bethel giving up 70 points, and in, in addition, Carlton lost to McAllister, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, McAllister hasn't had the book of knowledge in a while. Uh, what's, your, what's your thought on the MIAC in week one? Well, you know, it's obviously a little bit, of, uh, I don't know if embarrassing is the right word, but for, for the, the football team that left the MIAC uh, because it, it couldn't compete, 
generally speaking, you know, to uh, to to lose to the the team that left um, is not a good sign. But I think you know the Mayak had played almost so impossibly good, and or maybe had become impossibly deep uh, over the past few years. You know, you have a couple of of, of teams that lost their quarterback. And and as we know in D three for a, a middle a mid level program a really great quarterback can uh, can lift all boats so to speak you have Augsburg without Ayrton Scott now you have Gustavus without Mitch Hendricks and so those are two teams that were you know five six win type teams that that may be moving back to the middle of the pack now you know we don't know what's going on at Bethel um, but that's another team that you know we was a playoff team or a playoff caliber challenger type team. Not too long ago, you move that team back to the middle of the pack. Now uh, you do have Hamlin uh, starting to be competitive, but I think you know we may be looking at at a season where it's uh, it's a two, maybe depending on what Concordia Moorhead does, three team race. You know the two teams being uh, St. Thomas and St. John's. And I have one final conference to talk about. This is a push. The Empire Eight. Uh, the conference got a win it might not have been expecting when Buff State beat Otterbein, and then they lost one when Hartwick fell to Western Connecticut. Brockport-Hobart, of course, as I mentioned, a good battle between a middle-pack team in the Empire Eight and a contender in the Liberty League. Yeah, and, and you know, you didn't even mention St. John Fisher getting off to a really good start, uh, winning 52-10 against Olivet, a team that, um, you know, occasionally is, is a contender in the MIAA, but the, the theme there for them is uh, Fisher got off to a, a really odd, slow start last year. And then the the whole Empire Eight became this jumble of teams we couldn't figure out. Nobody really pulled away, and uh, and, and it showed in the playoffs. Whereas, uh, you know, this week, again, we don't exactly know who's pulling away, but I think we do. Uh, we may be looking at at least a, a little bit more competitive top half in the E Eight. So thanks for your uh, question there, Reader. Uh, we didn't talk about your conference, but it gave us the opportunity to talk about a few things. Um, and we will, again, put that call out on Twitter uh, as we are getting ready to uh, record this podcast. So, um, you know, we've usually ended with the lightning round. Um, you know, I, we determined we were actually not so good at lightning rounds because we just couldn't uh, maintain the pace necessary for a lightning round. So we're bringing out the two-minute drill. And the two-minute drill, Keith, I literally have uh, back here in uh, in my left hand, I have my uh, stopwatch. No, I have the timer app on my phone. So we are going to get just two minutes here. I know we've slated a bunch of things to talk about, but when the two minutes are up, that's it. I don't think we're even going to do the shot in the air thing. We just have to stop in the middle of the sentence. You good with that? Uh, I'd like to finish a sentence, but I think we should kill it at two minutes, yes. <laughs> All right, well, we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll finish the sentence, but here we, we go. We already wasted 10 seconds right there. No, not yet. Our two-minute drill begins now. So uh, St. Thomas, they did not start either of the Division One transfers at quarterback on, on Saturday. Alex Fenske, the senior, uh, is the guy who got the call. And once again, Glenn Caruso, loyal to a senior quarterback. Uh, Wisconsin Whitewater did not start the senior incumbent quarterback Whole ton of radio silence out of Whitewater as to why Chris Nelson and wide receiver Marcus Hudson did not dress, whether it's disciplinary or what. They didn't need them in a 51-3 win against TCNJ. Certainly did not. North Carolina Wesleyan coach Jeff Filkowski certainly knows what his team is getting into next week, hosting Mount Union. Filkowski coached Marietta before taking this job, but if his team threw six interceptions against Stevenson on Friday, then I don't, I don't want to figure out what's going on next. Thanks. Lost in the Wash U comeback versus Carnegie Mellon. Another great comeback that we didn't even get to mention under best comebacks uh, was a great day Sam Banger had for uh, Carnegie Mellon. 42 carries, 251 yards. 
He needed just one more yard in that last carry in overtime to keep a drive alive. Instead, WashU won 41-34. Rowan had another of Saturday's great comebacks. They rallied from 14-3 down to win 19-14, and the Profs' defense picked off five passes in that game. The battle of what bridge is that? Ah, Oh, Commodore Barry. The Commodore Barry Bridge. There we go. We got 40 seconds. All right, look, maybe I've been doing this too long, and I know everyone writing D3 game recaps are not professional sports writers, but can we please stop with the game stories for 29, 28 games that have a lead and then go into the paragraph about the first score of the game at at 740 of the first quarter? Inverted pyramid. Most important stuff first, please. All right, thanks. Copy editor rant over. <laughs> we got 20 seconds left, uh, uh, and we're completely off off book now. One of the things that really puzzled me, Keith, the Alfred Husson game. I thought Alfred would have handled Husson pretty uh, handily. Instead, uh, it was a close game. Yeah, well, again, that goes back to that item about the the mid east or the the super northeast, where uh, there were a couple surprising results: RPI over Norwich. Um, hey, there he goes. I wrap it up. We should do the whole podcast that way. That was cool. We used to do the whole podcast that way, remember? Well, we had a 10-minute podcast. <laughs> no, but we we used to time each individual segment, and we had to shut it off. Well, that was like 2014 we did that, and then we got away from it. No, I I, I just meant hit, you know, hitting quick items. That was, a, that was uh, pretty good. Look, now we can spend two minutes talking about whether we should have two minutes. <laughs> if you think we should have a two-minute drill or a four-minute drill, in which case, you know, everybody knows the four-minute drill is not at all the same as the two-minute drill. Um, you know, drop us a line, tweet us, comment in the comments, uh, that sort of thing. So this was Around the Nation podcast number 152 for the week of September 5th, 2016. Thanks for listening, and uh, remember to tune in for the rest of our Division Three football coverage throughout the week. And if you like our podcast, please consider rating it in uh, iTunes or whatever uh, podcast store you uh, frequent, because that will help other football fans uh, find it. Thanks for following Division Three football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guests, Johns Hopkins coach Jim Margraff and Stephen and Coach Ed Hoddle for their time on this edition of the show. And of course, thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 19th and then monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts and Facebook messages and uh, you know your Tumblr posts and your Friendster whatever anybody ever did on Friendster. I don't know what happened on Friendster. It's also way before hashtags, but yeah. You never know. So if you're listening to this uh, first thing in the morning on Monday, and who isn't, um, I'm going to be running a 10K, uh, so uh, that's at 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central. Wish me luck, especially considering I think I heard thunder uh, while we were in a break on this podcast, so who knows what the road will be like. I have run six miles once in my life, and that was last Wednesday, so I'm totally prepared for this. Good luck. As a baseball player, you never had to run more than a few hundred feet at a time. This is a completely different thing for me. That's true. Well, you're going to be running 10K more than, than me tomorrow. I'll be tracking my steps, but on a way to a fantasy football draft. I have one of those, too. Uh, I know not to draft Teddy Bridgewater. Yes, don't. Uh, should I dra- should do, I- do draft Joe Callahan, though, if you want a handcuff quarterback. Not that anyone takes handcuff quarterbacks, but... Uh, but for uh, for Aaron Rodgers, as uh, Callahan not only made the roster, but is he the number two? He is the number two at the moment. Of course, Crazy it's like thought. being the backup shortstop to Cal Ripken, but, you know, it still works. Fair point. Fair point. He's going to get the check, and he'll get some reps in practice. We'll have to hit him up for a loan at some point. 
I don't think the credit. You know, I don't think as soon as it can begin, it can end. As as we also learned uh, over the weekend, some of our um, favorite D three players not retained. Uh, I hopefully Cecil Shorts gets picked up somewhere, and I don't think the credits music lasts this long, so I think we're gonna have to cut this off. I thought you cut it off at that at hashtag tweets and Instagram posts, so you know. 